Hey, y'all. I'm Min Vu. Hello, hello. I'm Sandra Pham. And this is Asian in Austin, season two. Woo! Welcome back, y'all. Thanks for for joining us for another season. I know we took a little bit of a break, I think well-deserved break to just kind of reset, relax, really do a lot of reflecting on the previous season. So yeah, welcome back. Yeah, it's been a welcomed break. So that's been really nice. And I think Sandra and I, you know, we've been figuring out where we want to take this podcast, how we want to evolve it, what direction we want to take it. And we're still figuring that out, to be honest. But we knew that, you know, we still wanted to create a space where these stories are being shared from people in our community. And so I think that feels true right now. And and that feels really good. So we're excited to, to be able to do that still with y'all. Um, Sandra, what have you been up to? How are you? <laughs> um, where do I start? First of all, I can't believe we're in mid-April. So that's a quarter and a third of the year that's gone already. And just for me, it's been, I don't know if slowing down is the right word, but just connecting in real life has been super important for me and resetting all of that. The end of last year was very much go, go, go on all fronts, right? Like work and the house that I finally moved into. Congrats. Thank you on you too. Um, And so really welcoming a season of bloom, I'm going to say, just in theme of the conversation we have with our guest today. I feel that. I feel like there's been a lot of like being more intentional about the experiences that I'm having and who I'm spending time with and the energy that I'm receiving or giving out and things like that. There's also in the backdrop of all of that, being able to pause and have the opportunity to pause has been like really helpful for me. We celebrated birthdays, you know, mm-hmm. recently and and I feel like we both had meaningful, great experiences with our community of friends and stuff. And I think that was a special thing and a really, I think for me, at least that like filled my cup a little bit more for what's to come, you know? So I appreciate having a March birthday in that sense. (laughs) What I loved is actually, so for the theme of your birthday, we did the whole 13 going on 33. And I feel like that's very much on par with how I'm viewing my life this year being also 33 and how we celebrated our birthdays and our identities, but kind of holding, I would say our inner child or inner younger self with this grown person that you are today, this 33 year old, but holding both of those identities very closely together and not forgetting both of those things. uh, If that makes sense, right. Kind of that, that inner child and that person who was just so, You're learning a lot. You're changing a lot at 13 and being kinder to ourselves at that age, but also being very hyper aware of what is going on and the the capabilities we have as 33 year olds. And so I felt like that was very, (laughs) I know that's also in theme with this podcast a little bit (laughs) in in the sense of just like coming, you know, like as we explore our identities and, and knowing that at 13, there was a lot of navigating even for me, right? The Asian American identity. And yeah, just like you said, holding space for both of those things, the knowledge and wisdom that we have at our age now, and being able to create experiences for that part of ourselves at 13, that feel safer, that feel more fun, that feel more true and authentic to what we had always wanted, perhaps, but just weren't given the opportunities or felt safe enough to be able to explore and express. So thank you for bringing that up. That's awesome. So with that, how we want to celebrate AAPI Heritage Month, we're excited to bring our guest here. Aisha Khan has been such a powerful force in the community in terms of capturing a lot of our stories. She spent five years at the Austin History Center as the Asian American Community Archivist. And I think, you know, last season we learned a lot about with Dr. Eric Tang, just kind of context setting, right? Of 
the history of the Asian American community at a national level. And we wanted to dig in a little bit more specifically into the AAPI history here in Austin and how that's unfolded. And we thought Aisha would be a great guests to be able to kick off our, our next season with that information. So I'll share a little bit about her bio and then we'll get into the conversation. Aisha Khan has worked in Austin as a storyteller, facilitator, and community archivist for over 10 years. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Cinema and Photography from Ithaca College and a Master's in Information Studies from the University of Texas at Austin School of Information. She joined the city of Austin's equity office as an equity and inclusion coordinator in December of 2022, after working as the Asian American community archivist at the Austin History Center, Austin Public Library, for nearly five years. In addition to her professional archival work, Aisha has been a longtime volunteer and collaborator with the South Asian American Digital Archive and is proud to serve as their current board president. She is also a 2021 to 2023 Rare Book School Mellon Cultural Heritage Fellow and community advisor for the Texas After Violence Project. She believes deeply in the history of Black, Indigenous, and people of color as a site for healing, organizing, and building a more humane future. Super excited for y'all to listen in on this conversation, and let's get into it. Hi, Aisha. Welcome to our season two of Asian in Austin podcast. Hi, I'm so excited to be with both of y'all today. Likewise. Yeah, the first season, so I'm excited to be a part of the second. So we like to start our episodes to get our listeners acquainted with who you are. Would you mind sharing with us your ethnicities and your pronouns and any other identities you would like to share? Sure. So my name is Aisha Khan. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the daughter of a white woman from Massachusetts and a Pakistani immigrant who grew up in the UK and came to New England in the late 80s. I'm a big sister. I have one brother and then a very baby sister that was just born a year ago. And I'm a child of divorce, raised by a single mom. I was raised in the South, born in Massachusetts, but really spent most of my time in Georgia in the metro Atlanta area. I'm a community archivist, storyteller, late blooming queer. And yeah, I don't know. I just love stories and love plants and being outdoors and connecting with people for stories. I know we'll get into a little bit of your educational background, but a couple of things that you just shared with us, I'd love to learn also about being a part-time plant parent, (laughs) any fun plants that you're currently growing or learning more about. Well, I'm really excited because I inherited an orchid plant from a friend who had to move away from Austin I feel like so many of my friends have been moving away recently. And she said that she has never been able to get it to bloom. And so I was like, well, can't make any promises, but it just started to bloom over the past couple of weeks. So that's been really exciting. Otherwise, I just have a lot of sort of standard pothos plants because those are, you know, really easy to maintain. And I say I'm a part-time plant parent because... I'm not super consistent. (laughs) And I often think that the health of the plants often mirror my own health. So when I'm feeling dehydrated or overworked or stressed, I take a look and see my plants kind of feeling it. So it's a good visual reminder for me to give them some love, give myself some love, drink water, all that good stuff. I love that. And mm-hmm. and also congrats for the orchid. I mean, I feel like that in itself is like a reflection of you, you did that. Like you, you got that going and it's blooming and life is thriving. And that's, that's amazing. I, I'm not a plant person, but I've been learning a little bit. And I will say like, I never felt that experience of like, when you see a bloom or like a new part of the plant growing and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I helped make that happen. (laughs) Like the environment here is a good environment and we're feeling good. Um, That's awesome. I love that. Mm -hmm. I have a fig plant that 
Yeah, it's so funny when you get those little bursts of blooms, like the smallest baby like leaf that shoots up, you get so excited seeing it. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's a nice way to pay close attention to things that are happening. The small wins, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. And uh, such a great time. It's spring. I will say I've killed a pot though. So I don't know what that says about me. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I think one of mine's dying too. So, you know, we, we have the winds and you know, it's like, yeah. part of it is part of life. So it's, it's yeah, awesome. it's a cycle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so touching on a couple of things that I actually didn't know that you grew up or originally were born in Boston and then made kind of a migration down South. And then we also know that you studied at Ithaca College. So how was just kind of, it seems like you got to see different parts of the country and then eventually what brought you to Austin? Was it your master's program at the University of Texas? So it wasn't. Yeah, I moved to Georgia when I was really young. I think we moved for my dad's work. And then, yeah, I did move around a lot. I think I went to a different elementary school for almost the first five or six years of my education, grade school education. My parents got divorced. We actually moved back up to Massachusetts for a couple years where my grandparents helped raise us and then moved back to Georgia before I started middle school. And, you know, in the like teen spirit, when I was getting ready and applying for colleges, I wanted to get as far away from my home as possible. And I was interested in filmmaking programs. And I never really thought that I would be in upstate New York, I really envisioned, you know, being in New York City or something like really exciting and bustling like LA um, or other bigger cities. But Ithaca College had a much more like financially affordable program. They had a scholarship program that I was a part of. And so I found myself in cold upstate New York, small liberal college, Ithaca College. And so I actually moved to Austin in 2011. I was part, I got accepted into like an apprenticeship program at the Austin Film Society, which that program has evolved since then, but they had part-time work, working different areas that AFS kind of was doing at the time. And one of those was like community education programs. So I moved to Austin and did part-time film clubs at Martin Middle School, Dobie, Mendez Middle School, Langford Elementary. And so that's what brought me to Austin. Another identity that I didn't share was I've been like a longtime food service worker, I think for like over 10 years. My first high school job was at Red Lobster in the suburb of Atlanta. So I was working food service jobs, working at AFS, freelancing as an assistant editor and like random jobs like that. I did that for about, I think, maybe four years before I actually ended up going to graduate school for, uh, for libraries and archives. That's cool. And, and so what kind of propelled that? Like you have all these experiences, you're diving into to a little bit more about filmmaking what kind of pushed you or motivated you to to get into grad school for information studies? Yeah, honestly, it was, I saw archives as a pathway to get health insurance. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe only work one job for once in my life. I have such a deep respect for filmmakers and other people who work in that gig economy. It was not a good fit for me, especially I think the film landscape at the time in Austin, I was drawn to, you know, it has such a rich sort of history of independent filmmaking um, that I was really attracted to as an undergraduate. But the realities of that was really hard for me when I came here. It was very white. There were, you know, amazing female filmmakers working there at the time, but I never really had a community that I was a part of that allowed me to connect in that way. And well, I think there have been some strides that have been made at the time. It really relied heavily on unpaid labor or working for very little pay. I remember getting really excited for like an assistant editing job that I think they paid like $8 an hour, you know, and that just wasn't feasible for me in the long term. But while I was doing editing work, a lot of that was for nonfiction projects and so a lot of times that in involved doing research in the archive, 
you know, hunting down footage or other pieces of history that could support the narrative. And at the same time, I was also working, you know, with young people, predominantly black and brown youth. And in those classrooms, we would, you know, make these hilarious soap opera type films with the kids with middle, like highlighting all of the drama of middle school. But we'd also talk about, you know, how we don't often see ourselves in in these industries that, you know, we're kind of trying to learn. And so I think those conversations I was having with my students, coupled with the research that I was doing, and just my love for analog media, you know, I was taught how to make films and photography using film and videotape. And my dad was always filming us with his little camcorder whenever, when we were kids. And so it just sort of seemed like a really good fit. I, before going to graduate school, volunteered, there's a archive here in town, a community archive called the Texas Archive of the Moving Image. They crisscross the state and work with families, small organizations, old TV stations, and also like universities and other education institutions. And they digitize home movies, educational films, things like that for free. And that was sort of my entry point into what it could be to be a working archivist. And again, doing that work in a place where there were, I think there's maybe only two or three you know, Asian American films that were in that archive at the time. And so still just, I think, applying with a lot of questions in mind, what gets saved, how our narratives are told, who's who's taking care of those narratives, you know? So I think all of those questions, but with the reality of, you know, wanting a stable job and, you know, not having to hustle every day, that's kind of what brought me to graduate school and archives. Yeah, I love the way that you just shared that journey with us and kind of your passion for telling stories and filmmaking and how that really led this to the career that you have. And a key thing that you said was just even the way that the history has been told can be very narrowed and skewed, right? And so can you tell us, especially for those who are maybe not as familiar with the Austin History Center, what it is and and some of the work that you previously did there before you left? Sure. The Austin History Center is the historic division of the Austin Public Library System. So we're part of the city of Austin. And that collection, you know, first started as just, you know, a part of of the central library in Austin. So if folks who've been in Austin for a long time, you may remember the John Henry Falk building, which was the central library before our current central library was open. Right next door, there's a historical building that is now the History Center. It's between 8th and 9th Street on Guadalupe. And that was the first central library location for the library system. And so within that building grew a small, you know, couple drawers of local Austin history and over time grew to take up the whole building. And so so it's been around for a long time. The community archives program, however, started in 2000. I think that's just so powerful to think about having a community archives program that has sustained for, you know, over 20 years. There's not many programs like this in the country. And it was really created out of protests and organizing that was happening both in the community, but also within Black librarians at APL, you know, really calling the History Center out about the collections that it had and really the lack of representation for communities of color in Austin. The Austin History Center was really in step with a lot of archival institutions across the country in terms of prioritizing white, middle to upper class narratives of success while, you know, ignoring, erasing, manipulating, or not collecting at all the histories of communities of color. And so between 2000 and I think 2006, there were three positions created. They were called neighborhood liaisons at the time. And um, one for the African-American, Mexican-American, that's the term they used at the time, 
and Asian American communities. And, you know, I just want to give a shout out to Esther Chung Martin, who was, you know, our first Asian American community archivist. She was a social worker. I love that she didn't actually have a background in libraries and archives, but she had the relationships and connections with the community to really build um, the Asian American collection that we have today. And she was in that position for over eight years. And so particularly the collections we have that are centered around the Chinese and Vietnamese community was all thanks to to her and the relationship building that she did. And I was so really honored to kind of follow that legacy. I started, I think, 2018. I was the Asian American community archivist for almost five years. I left in December. That is, I'm just like digesting. (laughs) Sorry, it's a lot. No, no, it's amazing information though. And I feel like not a lot of people know it, including myself. Mm -hmm. Like I knew that there was a history center. I didn't really understand the genesis behind your work, even, you know, as you share that, like, comparatively to other cities, our program has been sustained for so long, which, you know, going even back to what you're saying about Texas Archive oh, and yeah. image, and I think it's a great service, but to your point, like, depending on the communities that the people in within those organizations have connection to or are able to build relationships with, also determines the types of history that they're collecting and the types of, you know, we we think about specifically the Asian American communities. And like you were saying, unless you have those relationships to them, and especially if there's like a language barrier, there might be like a barrier to being able to even know that this is an opportunity to to share some of our history and, and our experiences in a way that can be preserved and captured. So in thinking about, you know, the, you spent five years, right, at the Austin History Center. Mm-hmm. Um, in in that experience, I'm curious if there are, one, my mind's like racing in a bunch of different directions here. Okay. Let's start with, if you can share a little bit more, if you have this information to be able to share, the kind of different migration patterns, like mm-hmm. at, if we think about like the different decades of Austin and like an influx in Asian American immigrants or refugees. Can you map that out a little bit for us in in terms of that timeline? Yeah, sure. I can give like sort of a brief overview. And then if you want me to delve into specific parts, I'm happy to share other stories um, from that time period. The Asian population in Austin and central Texas remains pretty small until, you know, the 1960s. And that's really like a result of um, a series of racist immigration policy. Um, You know, I think a lot of you are familiar with the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Um, I love that you spoke with Dr. Eric Tang, who gives such a beautiful and concise history of what's happening nationally in terms of Asian immigration However, so we had the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. In 1917, there's another immigration ban that kind of expands to all all country, all Asian countries. So really is limiting immigration to Texas. However, we do see a small Chinese community growing in Austin in the 1800s. I think by 1875, um, the Austin census accounted for 20 Chinese living in the city at that time, which is small. And I honestly think that it's probably much bigger given the inconsistencies and inaccuracies with the census at that time. I mean, even today, you know, there are so many, you know, barriers to participating in ways that our identities as Asian Americans are erased in these processes. So I imagine that it is larger Many of these Chinese people that were coming to Austin were mostly men who were engaged in Chinese labor, either in California or actually Mexico as well, Um, particularly after the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. A lot of Chinese laborers were working in Mexico and Canada. And so after labor sort of ceased in terms of railroad work, 
They would come to cities like San Antonio, had has a, a really rich Chinese history, but then some would come a little farther up to Austin to own and operate small businesses like grocery stores, laundromats, and that kind of thing. And it, it was happening enough that I think in 1885, the Knights of Labor, which was an early labor union in Texas, issued um, a memo in the Austin Statesman, really discouraging readers, um, white residents from patronizing Chinese-owned businesses because there was a real fear of them, you know, building economic power in the city. So that's what tells me that there was a strong community there, even if it was small. And we have some great collections at the Austin History Center of some of those early Chinese families. I know that y'all had talked about the Singh family. You know, I love the story of the Ng family, which owned Samwa Cafe. It was one of the earliest Chinese restaurants on Congress Avenue. They opened in 1914. And what's really powerful about that story is that it was owned by three Chinese residents that actually, well, they rented for a long time and then were able to pool their money together um, to buy the property. And it was the first and only property um, solely owned by Chinese residents at that time. So I just love these narratives of us organizing and building power in that way. And so I think you do see some other sort of early waves of immigration prior to 1965, but they're still pretty small in number. You know, in the 1940s through 50s, you see more immigrants coming to go to UT or other learning institutions. I know like Houston Tillotson was able to employ, you know, Asian professors and faculty much earlier than UT, for example. If you know Ashley Chang, her family history is, is tied to Houston Tillotson in that way. So definitely reach out to her about that. There's also World War II that's happening, you know, in the 40s, which brings, we have, you know, the Fab 100, which were Chinese interpreters were brought to the United States. And Austin Bergstrom Airport was sort of a hub for some of that training. So we have some more Chinese families that come as a result of that work. Many go back to China after they're done serving, but there were a few that stayed you know, this is also during a time of Japanese incarceration during World War II in Crystal City, which is, you know, located just outside of San Antonio, incarcerated many Japanese families. And that included Asamu Taniguchi. He and his family were farm workers in California, but were incarcerated at Crystal City in Texas. And after after being released, they ended up staying in the valley and, you know, continuing their farm labor here in Texas. And Asamu's sons went to the University of Texas at Austin for architecture. And Alan Taniguchi became the dean of the architecture school and later brought his father to Austin in the 60s. And a beautiful legacy of Asamu Taniguchi is if you've ever been to the Japanese gardens at the Zilker Botanical Gardens. Those were built by him free. It was a volunteer project and meant to be a gift of peace to the city, sort of reflecting back on all of the challenges that he had faced, I mean, his family had faced and still wanting, you know, to bring people together. And I think that's just a powerful narrative, especially when we see what's happening at the border now in the last decade or so. You know, people from the Crystal City community often engage in those protests of solidarity around migration and immigration rights. Okay, so there's so many nuggets of information and stories and people's experiences that I'm curious at the Austin History Center, what are the types of things that we can engage with to learn more about some of these stories that you're sharing, particularly like thinking about, you know, the cafe on Congress Avenue and things like that. Are those materials 
available at the History Center? Yes, I mean, I think that's what's so exciting is that you can hold the photographs for yourself. You can listen to oral histories of many of the descendants from these stories. And, you know, we have collections of newspaper articles. I feel like that was a huge, just delving into the statesman's archive is so rich with information because I think as y'all may know, like when our families immigrate, we can't bring much with us. And so I think that coupled with the erasure that our archival institutions have done for so long, there's a lot that's lost in a physical sense, but oral histories, newspaper archives, those have been rich sources of little nuggets or like a trail of a story that can you know let you dive in deeper. The Austin History Center also has online exhibits that can provide um, a great overview of some of these bigger trends as well as dives into specific family or resident stories. So that can be a great way to get started. Also sort of a core responsibility of the community archivist is to maintain a resource guide, which kind of helps you know, bring together all of the different resources that are found at the History Center under, you know, under a specific community. Because, for, you know, for me, before I went to graduate school, I didn't do archival research. And I think it's sometimes it's a really intimidating process if you've never been before. I'm really proud of the way that the Austin History Center really strives to be accessible to the community. So you can come without appointment, you don't need to provide identification, and you can see whatever you want to see. You know, we have yearbooks. Min, I know that you're from Austin or from Pflugerville, right? You yeah. know, people come just to see the high school yearbooks or, you wow. know, things from their family. And um, it's amazing. a special, it's like a, it's just such a warm place to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, so much history they, and stories that are just like <laughs> in those four walls. I think yeah. about the memo that was shared, right, of like not patronizing some of these Chinese owned and operated businesses, it it is not lost on me that this pattern is like from the beginning of our country yeah. of just fear and this idea of having your, having their power kind of taken away from them and this adverse reaction to new populations and communities coming into a space and rather than like being welcoming of it and sharing the space there is fear and then there becomes this narrative of like I, I don't know I just when you were sharing that I'm like we've seen that over and over and over yeah. you know yeah same I'm I was almost tempted to ask you if we had copies of those memos because I think unfortunately we may see some similarities with some of the rhetoric and things that we may see these days. And I, I was very tempted to say, you know what, <laughs> should we look at those? Because history seems to be not so far away. Yeah, I mean, you're so right. And you can't, it was published in the, in the American Statesman. So if you go to the Statesman historical database, which you can access if you have a library card from your home or at any library branch, and you can see the full text of, of the circular that was published. I think you make such a great point, Sandra, because it reminds me of another story where between not just in these late 1800s, but in the early 1900s, you begin to see Asian Americans or Asian immigrants starting to purchase land. And so there's like a series of conversations that are happening at a state level around, you know, really trying to strategize on how to prevent um, Asian immigrants from land ownership. So for example, in 1921, there was a anti-Japanese conference, that's what it was called, hosted at the Driscoll Hotel, bringing legislators from across the state to look at what had been done in California, which has such a you know higher Asian population at the time, to see what can be replicated in Texas. And then in 19, I think 34, there was actual legislation proposed 
to prohibit land ownership, um, not only for Chinese immigrants, but also South Asian and Japanese immigrants as well. And that legislation didn't pass because there was actually a group of Chinese residents from San Antonio who came up and protested at the Capitol. And it completely, just not a month ago, you know, there was a bill that was proposed to bar Asian Americans from China, Korea, Iran, Russia, to not be able to own land. And Asian Texas for Justice, you know, really did a lot of organizing to bring people to the Capitol to protest something that has been happening time and time again. And so I think that's why I ended up working. That's kind of what led me to the equity office, because so much of their work is rooted in history and the power of what we can learn from these stories, because they do repeat. You know, it's I think our country, so much of the structure and white supremacy is is intended to make us forget of those stories not only of what has been done to our communities, but those stories of organizing and building community and pooling resources together. Folks don't want us to remember that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you just like, I'm like Sandra. Like, you I, yeah. <laughs> like that uh-huh. people, like the story even of just like the Driscoll and I'm just like imagining people just, what do we do about the Asians? Like, exactly. you know? <laughs> But also, that sounds so far-fetched. You know, I'm like visualizing that in such a historic, that's the back then, like those are, but just as you said, literally legislative session right now, they're doing basically the same thing. So like, <laughs> it's wild. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it's angering. It's triggering, right? It's, yeah. we talk about it and it does feel like such a different time period, but it's absolutely not. It's things that we are very much dealing with now in maybe different mediums, you know, more mediums (laughs) in which to deliver these hateful messages. But I do want to transition if that's okay. I think we can't let you go without asking about some of your work with the uh, South Asian American Digital Archive and being the board president and really kind of your personal journey and being a Pakistani American and uh, being a board president and really getting that to to publication as well. Would you mind uh, kind of sharing? Yeah, and thank you so much for asking. The work of SADA, South Asian American Digital Archive, is just so close to my heart. I came across the organization when I was in graduate school, and I was finding myself kind of encountering the same sort of internal questioning that I did when I was in working more in a filmmaking space was like, is this field really for me? Most of my coursework and volunteer opportunities, as I mentioned, didn't really, there was no space for me to see my own identity reflected. A lot of the archives that I was working at didn't have Asian American collections. And I was so frustrated that I just Googled like, South Asian archives, like where are they? And SADA, SADA came up and they were doing a Kickstarter campaign for a book for South Asian American history. And I immediately wanted to get involved. They had at the time, they still have it. It's called the First Days Project and their micro oral histories with immigrants talking about their very first day in the United States. Um, it's often a day that stays with them. And so I was a volunteer sort of oral historian for them for a long time. And, you know, I think for me, who is biracial, who for the most part, I, you know, was raised by my mom, like my dad was there, but um, my dad was also the only member of his family to come to the United States and still is. So for me, I, it was really hard to feel a connection to that part of my identity for a long time. And, you know, there was so much pain in my own, in my dad's story that it was hard for me to really have a dialogue with him about it at first. I think that that has gotten better as we both get older. But Sada really provided me a space for connection and really a sense of belonging, you know, even my narrative as, you know, a South Asian American doesn't mirror a lot of those common 
stories for back, you know, model minority stories of, Hey, I'm not Indian. I'm not Hindu. I'm not high earning. You know, I'm an organizer, you know, these, all these stories were hard to find in even, you know, narratives of the South Asian American experience. And so Sada has just been a home for me there. And um, I'm really honored to, you know, serve as their board president. And that book that I contributed to for their Kickstarter was just released last year. And to have a whole textbook, like those heavy textbooks that we would lug around and break our backs in high school or, you know, grade school, just full of white history. Now there's one of histories from like people just like me and it's emotional. It's been healing work. And I love that they are a community-based archive, which means that they are not a part of a formal academic institution. They're really able to highlight the narratives of working class, immigrant, refugee, undocumented, queer, South Asian Americans from across the country. And they have a lot of really great stories that are based in both Austin and and in Texas. So you can um, explore their website. I encourage you to check out the book. There's a copy at the History Center. Yeah, they're just an amazing organization. That's amazing. Congratulations Mm -hmm. on all that. Even just hearing you speak about it, I can feel the passion and just how proud and and it feels like just in in the time that we've been able to chat today like this feels such like such a good place for for you and and congratulations on on all of that I feel like I could we could be talking to you for like the entire day and so I but I don't want to take up more of your time I feel like there's obviously so much more about the immigration and refugee patterns mm-hmm. into Central Texas that we could talk about. And maybe we can get you back on for a future episode to continue some of that mm-hmm. history. But I think today, like, I- I'm curious for you what your relationship is with your background, with your AAPI identity, how that manifests today. And we we heard a little bit about that, too. But just if you could take a couple seconds to reflect a little bit on your relationship with that piece of you today. I feel so grateful for the Asian American community here in Austin. It has really given me that coupled with my experiences with spaces like SADA has just given me a grounding in myself that I, I didn't have for a long time. And I feel my voice getting stronger I sometimes get, when we talk about the histories of Asian Americans, of communities of color, even learning like the real history of white people in this country and the ways that they have been privileged over time, which is also kind of hidden from us. You know, you get emotional when you encounter this information in graduate school, in my early 30s you know, imagining what our lives would be like if we had already had access to these stories, if we had access to our family stories, because sometimes, you know, those go unknown from us, are stolen from us. And really through community, through through my position at the History Center, I was brought in and called into spaces and seen for the first time in ways that I had not experienced growing up. And that has left me feeling really proud and being able to say I am a South Asian American. And yeah, I mean, it's the best. Like our food is so good. Our people are so good. The way that we build community is so warm and soft and tender. And in some ways, I grieve things that I may never get back. But I know that I can always keep learning my about my family's story and about my people. You know, white supremacy can't take that away from me as hard as they try. You know, as long as we stay in community and keep sharing stories, there's still a possibility for me to continue to get even more grounded in who I am. It's always a process, I think. But yeah, I think that's where I'm at yeah. right now. So that's what's been on my heart lately. You know, I will say when you were just beautifully wrapping that up, I... I was envisioning your orchid. 
actually. Yes. It was just such a <laughs> representation. So yeah, that was, thank you for spending this beautiful day with us and, and really sharing your personal experience. Of yeah. course. And going there with us and being vulnerable. And I think plus one, plus a thousand to everything that you were saying, like a, even in learning just some of the histories of different communities within right our umbrella there is that through line of that tenderness that you're talking about but still mm-hmm. standing up strong and like you know making sure like I think about the the story of the community from San Antonio like going mm-hmm. the protest and that's power that's power to know that knowledge and to in the face of learning all of this other atrocities to be honest and pulling from that history to give us strength and move us forward. So I just really appreciate you spending some time with us today and and sharing some of that stuff and can't wait to talk to you about more of that in the future, Mm -hmm. hopefully. But before we let you go as well, we will go on a little bit of a lighter upswing um, (laughs) and do a little bit of a rapid fire questions with you. We have three things and just the things that come to the top of your head. We'd love for you to share that with us. But what's one of your favorite Asian restaurants in Austin? Oh, that's so hard. Um, it's one of, so we don't have to feel like we're excluding anyone. Um, I really like Fuffy. Uh, do you have like a favorite, uh, one of your favorite Asian snacks that grew up eating or that you like to eat these days? The panda cookies bring me so much joy every time I eat them. <laughs> yes, we love that. And what about one of your favorite Austin pastimes? I love swimming in Barton Springs. That has just been my favorite place since I moved here. The waters just calm me. And the history of that place is also um, really beautiful. There is a Freedmen's community around Barton Springs, the indigenous history and so that springs, I encourage folks to to look into that. That's awesome. Great. Yes, it was so great to be here. I'm really honored. And, you know, there's people who do archival work like me, but this type of storytelling that you're doing through this project is so important. So I just thank both of you and I'm really grateful to be here. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks again for spending some time with us. Of course. Thank you. I wish we had infinite time to talk to her um, and to explore. And I'm somewhat ashamed to admit I've never been to the Austin History Center. So it's for sure, again, a field trip for us. Like we we need to. There's so much I think I could much. There's so much information in there. And even though we've only gotten into the 40s and 50s, basically, with her, there's so much more still that we weren't able to cover in just this episode. Aisha mentioned just in like the 60s, 70s and 80s, the wave of like Vietnamese, South Korean and other communities under AAPI and the rich history behind all of that too. Like I'm excited to be able to see, obviously we have our own experiences with our family and in kind of the Vietnamese migration patterns, but to just see that in the context of a larger picture would be really interesting, especially here in in Austin. So excited to hopefully learn more about that stuff in the History Center and also through more conversations through the podcast, hopefully as well, too. What was something that stood out to you? I think I'm going to make it like a personal mission of mine to pursue and honor some of these spaces that she mentioned, right? Like despite the persistent efforts of white communities and those in power to erase our communities. Just that conversation alone, I was just getting so angry and annoyed that we're having this conversation today in 2023. But um, my personal mission to recognize despite their efforts for erasure that we can go to these places. I I didn't know that about the Japanese garden, tea garden in Zilber Park and what a beautiful story that that still remains. And I know some of the initial first business, the Sam Walk doesn't exist anymore, but we've gone and chased down the Singh Moreno house. And so there are 
pieces of our history that very much still thrives and, and has been able to withstand these efforts to erase them. And so I, that's what I'm taking away is yeah, we, we got to honor those spaces more and really talk about them more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I've never been to the history center either. And even the tidbit of, I've been to the Driscoll. I've been, I've been <laughs> to the Driscoll where they held, yeah. <laughs> held a summit basically yeah. about how to like stop Asians from, yeah. So that's just like bizarre and wild to me. And that that space still exists, obviously. And it's like complete, you know, it, it's just like the story that, that saying of like the stories that these walls can, can share or could share, like it's so scary in a lot of ways to be mm-hmm. honest but yeah and I also didn't know about like Crystal City and that you know that there were Japanese Americans being incarcerated here in Texas as well too I mean I don't yeah I just I, I wasn't aware I, I I didn't know how close that was here to Central Texas as well too so I just appreciate her dropping all of that knowledge for all of us to be honest and I think history is powerful that's that's a reason why I feel like we were inspired to do this podcast as well too is because it's history is knowledge history is power and it often tends to seem to repeat itself but I think we can pull from these stories to know that also there is a different outcome that can happen. Yeah and and what a way for us to remember that the way that we've learned history has been very controlled Right. And so it's kind of our our job to discover those other pieces of history that weren't shared with us, those stories. And it's very much, again, a mission of this podcast to share those stories that haven't been shared before. Yeah. I don't think we can wait for other people to to do that work for us because it may not happen. So I am glad that we were able to share Aisha's story and all of her information and wealth of knowledge with all of you during this episode. And yeah, we're excited. We're excited to be back. So thanks for continuing this ride with us. Yep. See y'all later. Bye y'all. Bye.